Hello, you're listening to Reminisce with Ryan Reed. We're talking about empowering people through education, health, and wealth. Today we have on the line Stephanie Folan, and our topic is intersection of national and international education with a look at Cuba and the U.S. Uh, Stephanie, can you just introduce yourself and share a little bit about you? Definitely. So my name is Stephanie Victoria Folan. Um, I am currently a lecturer at the University of Maryland. I teach uh, UNIV 104 College Reading and Writing. Uh, I recently graduated with my Master's of Education in Curriculum and Instruction with a uh, focus on minority and urban education. I taught in Prince George's County Public Schools as a reading teacher. Prior to that, I taught financial literacy through an organization called Operation Hope. And it was actually through my work with Operation Hope that even uh, sparked the passion inside of me to be an urban educator. I was a career changer, and I had had a long and fulfilling career in real estate, um, primarily corporate and, and commercial real estate, culminating in me owning a real estate firm for about three or four years. However, a very shocking event occurred where my father had passed suddenly unexpectedly. And it was something about that event that uh, sparked inside of me the necessity to have a more fulfilling career path. I was successful financially, but I didn't feel fulfilled in my career. So I took a year, and I applied to an alternative certification program. I was admitted. And then um, I was uh, in my hometown teaching eighth grade reading and uh, reading English language arts in Prince George's County Public Schools. And I can honestly say that first year of teaching was one of the happiest years of my life. Um, and after a few years, I decided I need more skills, I need more tools. And I came to the University of Maryland to get my master's. And simultaneously, while achieving my master's, started teaching their SAT prep program. And then um, I was asked to teach the UNIV 104 uh, college, college reading and writing course, which primarily has a population of student athletes. 85%, 90% of my classes are uh, involved in student athletes. And then um, in my second year of my program, I was actually um, contracted by the Department of Labor to restructure the uh, curriculum for uh, their program, Job Corps. 650,000 students, 125 centers nationwide. And my job was to find and source web-based tools to assist aspirant learners. These are students who need accommodations under Section 504 or may have uh, a diagnosed learning disability. And that project was fantastic to me because I was building curriculum. I was a job for in digitizing their uh, uh, existing offerings. But I learned so much about myself and pedagogy and practice and much of it I was able to bring back into the classroom in the, case, in the, uh, in the collegiate setting, as well as K-12. So uh, that's been my background for the last 10 years. And now moving forward, I'm looking forward to doing more research um, on an international level, such as my recent trip to Cuba. All right. So it seems like you have a vast experience in education and, and working with um, people with disabilities, and children in general. So um, you share with me that you had a unique experience about going into um, Cuba and looking at the education there. And since you have so much experience here in the U.S., you know, that calls you to reflect on the differences and the intersections between both. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So recently, um I had the opportunity to do some research in Cuba. 
and I was there for about two weeks meeting with Cuban educators, Cuban professors from the University of Havana, University of Montanzas, to uh, study race, race and gender, but primarily race. Um, my research topic, my focus narrowed down was how does uh, skin color or colorism affect the educational and economic outcomes for Cubans. Simultaneously, some secondary research that I was doing was looking and seeing if some of the tools, forms of resistance, et cetera, uh, play out the same way they do in the United States. So before I delve down that path, I want to back up a little bit. Because while at the University of Maryland, even though uh, my degree technically in uh, curriculum identity, or excuse me, is in curriculum instruction and education, I actually study culture and identity. So much of my uh, research has already centered around how one's culture, how one's identity plays out in the classroom. And I specifically like to look at the period of uh, pre-reconstruction and right around post-reconstruction because there was a lot of things that were that was occurring at that time. The biggest thing that was occurring during that time is that African Americans were uh, at a verging period of uh, leading to citizenship, but also during that time, we were forming a nation within a nation. Mm -hmm. Later on with the advent of Jim Crow, we really had this type of system, and now we're trying to form a national identity post-civil rights, where we're just Americans, not black Americans, not white Americans, just Americans. But the first three, four hundred years was spent uh, uh, creating basically a caste system, an economic and socially stratification, stratification system, that would keep African Americans at the absolute bottom and other gradients and color nationality, ethnicity as you go further towards privilege and access to privilege. So when you look at the writings and the readings that were occurring during that time, of course one of the biggest voices focused to Washington, um, the very infamous put down your bucket speech that people are scholars are still debating to this day of, you know, how dare he say that we need to get an industrial education. Um, create this power block because at the time that was their uh, main source of capital that they had to lock on labor. And the first thing African Americans wanted post-slavery uh, was education. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, General Oliver Howard, who Howard University is named after, he, uh, you know, rode into the South, constructing uh, or uh, as the head of the Freedom Bureau and said, yes, we are going to give you education. And he came with missionaries, uh, white female missionaries from the north, et cetera. And when they got there, they found a very intricate, <coughs> excuse me, already existing system of schools. Um, much of that we use in our own modern day schools, superintendents, administrators, curriculum, <coughs> excuse me. And so they came down there, and there was this uh, a wonderfully constructed system that was already in place. And they basically asked them, how did you all do this? And they were looking, excuse me, and the, and the black people were looking by any means necessary, if I were to paraphrase. So uh, the main thing that they wanted from the government, free material, these missionary societies, was funding. They were like, we really want your money, but we don't want a lot of involvement from whites in our education system because we have to consider what would education then look like when your oppressor is educating you. And if you think mm -hmm, about it, much of mm -hmm. the questions that we have now we have, uh, uh, for the first time in history, the public school is predominantly black and brown, but the majority of our teachers are white women. How does it look to be educated in the face of your oppressor? And that's where a lot of my research centers, and I go all the way back to that creative reconstruction to look at the, the contributions of African-American women 
in the early formation of public schools to look at African American pedagogy, the link between African American, uh, or excuse me, the link between gentrification and education. So why is all that important and in any way germane to my trip to Cuba? Well, in a lot of my research, I'm looking at what does it take to form a nation within a nation, you know? How do you take folks who for hundreds of years have been systemically and purposefully denied education? A side point, throughout the diaspora, we were one of the only groups that was actually denied education. And other groups in the diaspora, yeah. they were education mm-hmm. was used as a tool to indoctrinate them. So even throughout Latin America, you know, you're going to have a strong Spanish colonial influence it, um, through Catholicism, um, they used the Catholic Church to push forward an agenda and, quite frankly, white supremacy, to be candid. And so even when you go back to Latin America, you still see a lot of that influence. I don't think we really uh, uh, critique the Spanish the way that we should in their participation in the global slave trade. So going to Latin America to study was very important, but also understanding that as black Americans, our legacy, our history, the way that we have kind of formed almost a counterculture within American culture as an effort to survive. Looking at those feelings, that early formation, and saying, what does resistance look like? What does power look like? Uh, one of the main reasons why African Americans uh, did not get education is because we were so close. The relationship that Americans have, American whites, American blacks have is very different than if you're on an island. Uh, or a colony. So if you think about it, many island nations, their elite, their ruling elite of whites, maybe 10, 15 percent of the population, if that, whereas 70, 80 percent of the country was primarily black, primarily at enslaved Africans. In America, we lived side by side. In America, we're cousins. Um, I don't think we put a lot of emphasis on the fact that uh, we literally are brothers. Uh, it was not uncommon for slave masters to have two families, one black, one white. So while you're growing mm-hmm. up, your brother is in the field, your cousin, uncle, auntie is in the field. Um, and so American racism is a unique blend. But having an education meant you could write a path, travel. It meant even you could read the Holy Bible to have hope of a savior, that you could even get out of slavery. And the way that our system of oppression and, and, and subjugation of blacks is designed, it completely removed education. Well, the moment they got education, it was on impossible. And, of course, they said, oh, no, 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 this is too much. And we see the advent of Jim Crow laws, excuse me, and, and the complete uh, um, erosion of the efforts of the Freedmen's Bureau and the period of Reconstruction. So why is that important? Well, when I went to Cuba... Uh, having a very quick <laughs> and, and burgeoning understanding of Cuban history. Um, it was primarily a black nation. Most of the people who were coming to the world from the Congo. Uh, in fact, um, once they won their independence from the Spanish in, I believe, 1903, uh, there was concerted effort in the 1930s to bring over more European whites because they wanted to whiten white the country. They felt that in the West they were looked upon as um, just a slave state, that they were primarily seen as the black country. And in a lot of my preliminary research, you see this in the cartoons, in a lot of the publications that were going out, you see the imagery of how Cuba is defined. And they didn't want that image. They wanted to be considered a real world player because of their geography, the way that they're situated, the fact that they were producing, they were one of the largest producers of sugar and supplying the West. Um, they definitely had 
uh, the West in a vulnerable position. And so after, just to give you a little bit of, uh, of history on their revolution, the plantation owners, the, the colonizers, decided, well, we need to be free of Spain. Uh, we're having issues with the Spanish, but they were kind of in a juxtaposition. They could either give up slavery or they could work with their slaves. And what they decided to do is the plantation owners said, you know what, I'm going to free my slaves, we'll fight together, and we'll just all be Cuban. And that was the impetus of uh, um, Cuba and, and their ongoing struggle with race. Because even though these people are now free, and yes, they're fighting side by side uh, in the Spanish Revolution, ultimately when it's over, who still has the money, the wealth, the capital, and who does not? In fact, one of their, uh, gen- one of their patriarchs in Cuba is, a, is General Mateo, who was a black man, a former slave, who fought in uh, their revolutionary war, excuse me, war against Spain. And they have statues of them, but they were all purposely whitened and lightened because they could not believe that a black man or a slave would have had such a prominent position within the military uh, during that period. In fact, Maceo's body was exhumed at one point to have his skull and remains examined to prove that he was white. I want to say that project took place in the 1940s. Uh, one of the most interesting things about my trip was uh, I went to the University of Havana, and it looked a lot like Harvard. I would later found out that one of the early architects had affiliations with Harvard. Um, but there is a white woman who sits at the front, almost like the scales of justice, and on top of the University of Havana's roof, there are these owls, and they all have these bright blue eyes. And our uh, contact at the University of Havana said that when the university was built, the reason why uh, these monuments and blue eyes is because education was preserved strictly for whites. So there's a lot of indicators throughout the island that shows that race has been a problem. Colorism has definitely been a problem, and it's embedded in the culture. But after the Spanish, uh, um, their independence from Spain, you still have inequality. You still have the ruling elite. And then there's a relationship with America. There was um, a press to have a relationship with America. And, of course, America wanted that relationship because the way that Cuba was situated, their high productivity with sugar, and the engines of the United Food Company, which I won't get into because that's a whole other conversation. But you move forward, and in 1959, you have the revolution led, ironically, by three middle-class white men, Che Guevara, uh, um, uh, Fidel Castro, and forgive me, the third patriarch is escaping my mind. I should know it because there's billboards of them everywhere. But they come, and you have an island that's primarily black. It is still 70% of Obama, darker-skinned Cubans. And they say, you know what? Uh, we are going to give you education. We are going to make this a socialist society. We will not be like other people in the West. We want to, uh, we want to be free. And the only way we can be free is if we're all Cubans. And so after overthrowing Batista, himself will make uh, David Pedro Mexico, Free Bajan Blanco, Negro, Mestizo, Mestizo is a myth. Um, Fidel comes in, and one of the first things he does, the first year that he's in power, is the literacy campaign. And what they did is that they trained a group of volunteers from Customer Airport to go into their rural areas, to go into their mountains, and to get the entire country literate within one year. And they did that successfully. Within one year, they had a 99% literacy rate. 
the question wow. is, ask ourselves, right? And from there, Fidel goes about constructing one of the best educations in the world. Most people, when they think it's Cuba, they don't think one of the best educations in the world. They think love, they think stars, they think beautiful beaches, or the blockade, or Fidel, or Shea, revolution, but not that. In fact, their largest export is doctors. Cuba sends more doctors around the world. Um, and I can discuss that later because we went to one of their international medical schools, University of Elam, which admits only uh, students from Latin America, African nations, and specifically African Americans and poor students from uh, the United States. And they do that to train people with this fantastic uh, medical training and send them back to their country, send them back to their neighborhoods that they specifically target or an underserved neighborhood. So even though you get a free medical education, you have to agree to work in a poor and underserved neighborhood for 50 years. So for a long time, through a project called Pastors for Peace, um, which is an affiliation of uh, different religions, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, excuse me, uh, et cetera, they are able to identify mm-hmm. students for this program and send them over there, tuition paid for, housing paid for, food paid for, um, you do your medical training. So it's fantastic. Um, excuse me. Going back to the, the formation of their national identity in Cuba, once Fidel successfully uh, overthrew Batista, he then says, We are no longer black students, white students, but we are just uh, racism no longer exists. We are all brothers. Everything is equal. Everything is um, communidad, equalidad, uh, which means community. Everything is equal. So, what does that look like? So the first thing we have to ask ourselves is they basically created a new constitution. They ripped up everything that was old. And quite frankly, they're going about establishing a new national identity. They're creating a new country uh, in the face of uh, former, um, former regime. And so after that first year of Fidel getting everyone literate, the next push became how to get everybody just through high school. Uh, the goal was for everybody at least through a high school education. And then from there, uh, you have an opportunity to choose your profession. Once you choose your profession, take your entrance exam, you can either continue on to college or you can go into whatever your designated profession is. It's important to note that because it is a social society, um, even if you choose a particular profession, um, let's say you want to be doctor, lawyer, engineer, but with that particular year, what they need are welders and phone operators those are really your choices because everything is about the, the communal good. What does the country mean? So it's country before self. So now the big push in Cuba is um, getting everybody through university, getting everybody from just having a basic high school education or arts in one high school to university. When Fidel came in power, there were only two universities, the University of Havana and I believe the University of Santiago, I think. Um, but now there's one for every province. There's 15. There's 15 provinces in Cuba. All the schools, whether it's a rural school or whether it's an urban school, uh, is equal. They all have the same facilities. They all have the same staff. Even if a student is somewhere over in the mountains, as long as there's a population there, they're going to have a school. In fact, Cuba spends more money and goes uh, and has a greater affinity for rural students than it does their students, their urban students, because they recognize they have the biggest team. And so they are deeply committed to uh, the education of their citizens because they see the education of their citizens as a community effort. 
I'll give you another example. In Cuba, when you become a doctor, you are assigned to a neighborhood. You get a four-by-four four block. You're going to have an apartment on the top, your office is on the bottom, and you are responsible as the community physician for everybody in your block. So they will walk up and down the street. They'll make house visits. They keep records. They keep charts. Um, they give prescriptions, all of the above. Can you imagine in America, in the same way that every community has a school, you know, we have our school district, and as long as you live in this district, you go to this school. Can you imagine if as long as you're in this district, this is your doctor, and they're responsible for your health? So they don't say, oh, you're sick, why didn't you go to the doctor? They say, oh, this person is sick, why didn't the doctor go see them? So the difference in how their mentality is, one of the biggest ways that I can address what Comunidad Equalidad looks like is two things, how they teach their children to read and how they handle animals. When I was in Cuba, I kept seeing stray cats. I saw a couple dogs were primarily cats. And this is very fascinating to me because unlike here in the States where stray cats are a little bit scary, you know, they look frail and hungry and scared, these cats were poised, confident, well-loved, well-groomed, well-cared for, and I kept seeing them. I mean, they would just, you could be sitting in a restaurant, and they'll just run through. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, this cat, you know, who, who brought their cat? And uh, I met a woman by the name of Walker, Lisa Brock, who, who was in Cuba. She was not with my group. She just happened to be there, and we connected. Uh, she's a scholar on Afro-Cuban and uh, African-American relations. What a great person to meet, just sitting by the pool, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to study race and gender. It's just one of those serendipitous things. But um, she and I were eating, and she said, um, no one really owns animals. Animals belong to, they belong to everybody. So everybody feeds them, everybody loves them, everybody takes care of them. And you could see it. You really could see it like they were well taken care of. In fact, it wouldn't even cross your mind for one person to own it because the concept of ownership. Why do you need to own this cat? take care of it. So whatever people's thoughts are about Cuba, there are things that they have definitely gotten right, and it's the concept of community. So the second example is that they are so on a push of everything being equal for everyone that all students, when they go to school, do not learn to read until they're six. And that way, every student is learning at, at the same time. But also, it is illegal. If you are an educator, it's illegal to offer tutoring. Why? Because it's seen as an unfair advantage. If a student is trying wow. to a subject within the school day, there's time where the educator can sit with them and get them caught up. But you cannot offer tutoring services because if one person, what is it weird? None of us are free until all of us are free. Uh, one of my American colleagues was recanting a story that one of her Cuban colleagues told her which is, uh, you know, a student came to class and he had on flip-flops where everybody else had on tennis shoes. And the teacher said, class, you know, Roberto has flip-flops, everybody else has tennis shoes. What are we going to do to make sure Roberto has tennis shoes? Mm. So that student isn't coming into the situation saying, oh, I'm poor, oh, I'm this, oh, what? It's, you know, we, we are collective. And I can honestly say when I was there, what I saw was them walking in lockstep. To them, we are unusual. Our very constant competition of getting ahead, of systematically stratifying people, leaving people out, is grossly unhealthy. And we know it's unhealthy because <laughs> we, we, you know, 
as a scholar, I look at those, I look at how unhealthy it is. I see the numbers. I see the, the facts and figures. But then with that understanding, you know how to add the piece of socialism. So the average income in Cuba is about 20 CUP. CUP is their CUP. They uh, run on pesos. There's, uh, Cuba has two different forms of currency, CUP and CUP. CUC is what they use to trade internationally and foreign. So when I went down there, I had to trade my American money for CUC or poop. But what the, the, um, the Cubans use is CUP, which are pesos, and it's automatically the inflation is, uh, or the, the currency is adjusted to when they go to the store, um, their food and different other items are already subsidized. So what I would pay for an item is grossly inflated. That's what they would pay for an item. It would be comparable probably to what I would pay in the United States as far as if I go have dinner with someone. Um, depending on the type of restaurant, I could easily pay. I think the most I paid was 20 CUC when I was there. Um, appetizer, wine, dinner, and dessert. 20 CUC, which could be about $20. I'm not saying in the States you get such a meal <laughs> for $20, but that's mm-hmm, what the mm-hmm. exchange rate is. Nevertheless, um, for them, it would probably be, you know, one or two CUC because of the level of subsidies. But that's a whole other conversation as to how their economics is set up. But I say that to say that they're paid in the 20, uh, um, for all intents and purposes, the 20, the equivalent of 20 CUC, which would be about $18, $19 per month for us. So housing is, uh, they have free housing, free medical care, free education, um, all the universities, college, medical schools, et cetera, it's all free. Um, you just have to pass your entrance and qualifying exam. Um, most of uh, the goods and items that you would buy on the open market is uh, grossly subsidized. However, the problem is that um, there is a strand of capitalism that exists, despite it being socialist countries, and that strand is creating grave inequality. Meaning, uh, with the tourism industry, they may only be making the people who work in these uh, various establishments may only be earning 20 CUC per month. However, they have the opportunity to get tips, whether you're a cab driver, a server, a uh, housekeeper. And so, on average, if a person needs, you know, the equivalent of a dollar a day in a room and you're there three or four days, that's three or four CUC, which could equal out to about 10,000 pesos, which is a month's salary in one of the days. So as people began to enter the tourism industry, a new level of inflation was brought into the country. Um, new money was being brought, the opportunity to have more money, maybe than your neighbor or the people down the street. And, you know, luxury items, goods, et cetera, were, became a lot more accessible in the past few years, especially in the Obama administration. But um, for those who aren't aware, and I can't believe I was on this part without talking about this, it does have a blockade in the United States. Um, and the blockade uh, is the reason we don't trade with them. On average, people for a long time couldn't go to Cuba. It, it, it's quite lengthy. Um, and this happened after uh, not only the revolution, but the Bay of Pigs. It was kind of America's way of punishing Cuba for uh, making them look foolish. And so uh, Cuba sided with, or their greatest ally was the USSR. And that was, of course, our biggest enemy. But when the USSR fell in the early 1990s, Cuba went through what's called the special period where it was a growth depression. And um, 
people who maybe were weighing, you know, 180, 190 pounds, you could see them a year later and they could be down to 115, 120. Mm. The food wasn't available, goods were not available. If you understand the economic structure of socialism or a communist country, they only produce so, so many goods per year, right? On uh, Facebook mm-hmm. population, et cetera. Here in, here in the, in the state, capitalist, there's never going to be an end of supply, never, right? It's hard to see <coughs> right, right. going into, uh, you know, the grocery store and, there, and the shelves being empty. And then the first thought is, oh, well, I'll just go to another grocery store. So not only is there supply, there's choice. And in fact, we're inundated with supply. We're inundated with our illusions of choice. Well, being in Cuba, it was very interesting to see, even if you have the means, because you're usually in America, it's just, do I have the means? Do I have the castle? Do I have, you know, the finance, et cetera, to get the, the supply that I need? It doesn't matter if you have the means. It just doesn't exist. Everything is rationed. So there were nights where whenever we would eat meat, um, I would feel bad if I didn't eat everything on my plate because I knew if we were eating meat, there were people somewhere on the island who weren't eating meat. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, right. There was a water shortage. So I remember when I visited one of the schools, um, I went to go wash my hands and water didn't come out. And I came out of the restroom and I said, oh, I need to wash my hands. And we had to go to four different spigots around the school outside just for me to get a trickle of water to wipe off the soap in my hands because there was a shortage in whatever that thing it was, they had already used the water until so they could recycle more water, et cetera. The part that's interesting that I would later found out is that all of Cuba, um, they are definitely, uh, when you go into, they are wealthier parts of Cuba, and they are lower income parts of Cuba. In a social society, you would think, well, how could this exist? Wherever you have that interjection of capitalism through tourism, you're going to find that inequality. And so for me as a researcher, that's where I'm digging into because overwhelmingly what we were seeing is that the lighter skinned students were able to benefit from that capitalist stream, whether it was because they had access to existing capital from the Batista years, if they had access to cultural capital wealth through uh, uh, skin privilege, and then the biggest one is um, after the overthrow of Batista and Fidel entering uh, as a new regime, uh, large portions of what would be classified as white students left the island and they moved to Miami. Um, many of those students were very wealthy. But then you had some Cubans who just found out left due to racism. They, were, they just refused. They were like, oh, equal. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> we're not doing it. <laughs> they were. They were just like, oh no, no. Think about I think about here in Prince George's County in the in the late seventies, right, where you had a lot more African Americans leaving D C after the riots coming mm-hmm. to Prince George's. And you had massive white flight. That's essentially what happened in Cuba. It was massive white flight. It's just that they didn't go to one side of the island, they left altogether. They left the country altogether and put their big with them. So what ended up happening is that for those who stayed their relatives in Miami would often send money back. So even during the special period, they were able to subsist because they were able to get goods and currency coming back. What's interesting is that during that time, you could not use, it was illegal to have and to use American money, and where are you going to use it? You know, what type of currency exchange uh, can you go to to exchange out your money? So for at least a good decade, you had a lot of people who were just literally sitting on dollar bills in their house just sitting with dollar bills around them that they couldn't do anything with. 
just the formation of that secondary currency CUC. I said I was going to get into that, but nevertheless, I did. Um, but uh, <laughs> going back to Fidel, uh, so you have this with this interjection of capitalism. You now have this also interjection of inequality. So quite frankly, if you didn't have proximity or access to whiteness, you were not uh, privileged to have a, a relative who had means to leave and to send money back. That's number one. Second, if you did not have access to uh, another form of cultural capital wealth that we saw in Cuba, uh, there, uh, if you didn't have access to education. Now, education is both free and available to everyone. However, right now, Cuba's largest population in their universities is college-educated white women whose parents were also college-educated. And they recognize that that's a problem. And we, of course, discuss certain things that we would see as potential solutions. But the problem is, with this one-nation identity, Cuba does not acknowledge race. So when they do research and they collect data, they do not collect race-based data. So how can you then solve a problem that you're not collecting data towards? Right. And that was one of the loggerheads that I met while I was down in Cuba, in that, you know, as America, because we've kind of advanced with our, you know, a nation within a nation, right? This is how mm-hmm. we're being a black scholar and a race scholar really came in handy because a lot of the problems that they were identifying, we've already, we have data for that. We've seen the long-term effects of what happens when you have a colorblind society, that inequality grows, that racism grows, um, because you aren't able to identify the needs of those folks. We've seen what happens when, uh, you know, why is it that? We know that the, the education, parental education, uh, affects the education levels of the students. So all of the problems that they were naming, we were offering, you know, the existing research that we had. The problem that we were having moving forward is that they don't collect race-based data. So why is that important? Well, in Cuba, the way that things are structured, the highest level profession, the prestige profession, the high paying profession is not doctors, it's not teachers, it's English interpreters and English teachers. And really foreign language, period. Why? Because not only can you become a teacher professor, you can enter the tourism profession. If you speak three different languages, they have visitors from all over the world, Germany, France, um, when I was there, I saw a lot of people from uh, Germany, a lot of Germans. Uh, they have a lot of Canadians that come down. But the two, but, uh, Americans and Canadians actually make up over 50% of their tourism. So despite the blockade, Americans are still finding ways to go to Cuba. So that means that there's a high premium placed on English. So people who want to enter into the tourism hospitality, that's considered their number one. So to go, when you take your engine stands, the best and the brightest are placed in that particular bracket. As a race scholar who had on their critical race theory hat while I was down there, I would also venture further to say that it probably helped that, or there has been conversation that given the existing prejudices of the West, um, by having the smartest, most talented uh, students interacting with foreign nationals, they also become almost PR, right, good in marketing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Say, here's our best and here's our brightest. But we notice, cannot say I have any sources based upon just observation, most of those were lighter skinned Cubans. And so if these are the people who are considered the best and the brightest, if this is the PR, the marketing campaign that you want to put forth to Western countries with historical inequalities, you have to ask yourself, how is that 
intersection of capitalism now affecting the economic and social outcomes and educational attainment goals of darker skin. Right. Are we then mm-hmm. recreating the historical inequality? Um, and that's kind of where I am with my research right now. Um, my goal is to go back in about a couple months and stay a lot longer, stay for a few months, and just really dig and see what I can come up with. But for me, it was groundbreaking coming back to the United States with this understanding because now we see that with capitalism, you're going to have gross competition. But if capitalism is based on indigenous land theft throughout the Western world and and the exploitation of black labor throughout the Western world, no matter what you do, wherever there's capitalism, you're going to have these inequalities. It's inevitable. So that's my own theory. Um, And moving forward, when you talk about educational attainment, we met a lot of Afro-Cubans who were highly educated. Some of the folks who were on the Cuban side, we had three black female PhDs, and highly educated, but because of the socialist country, it's not really moving your needle forward as far as economic attainment. You know what I mean? So you're mm-hmm. making the same, quite frankly, as the maid. So in that space, there is actually room for, yes, get education, but it's not moving your needle forward. So there's still work to be done. There's still access that needs to occur because I'd be very curious of these three women who were uh, darker skinned Cubans, if they left the country, what would their economic outcomes look like? Would their education right, translate right. to greater economic outcomes for them in any other part of the world? Any other part of the world. Um, going back to that tier, that tier of uh, professions, the top of that tier is tourism, hospitality, the middle of that tier are, is doctors. So for us here in the States, doctors are at the top of the tier, right? Right, so right. Like teachers on the bottom is probably tourism, hospitality, et cetera. Uh, someone came and said, oh, I want to be a hotel manager. We'd probably go, oh, that's great, Bobby. But Bobby would get a different response than Jamal who says, I'm going to medical school and I'm going to be a doctor. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Because for us, that's a very high-income, high-prestige position. Right, right. Um, being, a hospital, being a manager in a hospitality industry or working in hospitality is kind of seen as a less prestigious. Um, even if the incomes are the same, it's considered less prestigious. Because tourism is our biggest industry here in the state, our biggest export of technology. So, uh, and, that's, and that's something else. We talk about uh, STEM or technology. People get very excited. Like, oh, so is you know, a computer program or an engineer or they do this. Those are our high prestige, high status jobs. Why? It's connected to our economy. America's number mm-hmm. one export mm-hmm. is technology. So we place emphasis on that. Cuba's number one export is doctors, but for their economy to survive right now, it's based on the tourism industry. So they're putting a premium and prestige on that. So wherever we go, we see what I took from that is that it's not about intelligence or ability, it's about economics. We mm-hmm. need tourism, so that's considered the prestigious, most coveted position. And in that, there is scarcity, and now there is competition. Um, and that's the tenets of capitalism, correct? So correct. even though, yes, they got a lot of things right, equalidad, comunidad, um, in, in their socialism and their system and the way that it works, whether it's through you know, all the children being able to read at the same age, um, that they put so much emphasis to their students that every providence has a university, so if you want to go to university, as long as you pass your exams, you can do so. Even the way they take care of their cats and their dogs and, and other, you know, um, what we would call stray animals. 
But nevertheless, at the end of the day, when you're talking about a composition for resources and a scarcity of resources, whether it's intellectual, whether it's social, cultural capital, whether we're talking about actual financial capital, you're going to see inequalities. Those, those parallels are inevitable. Um, so with Cuba, I think the biggest uh, takeaway is how can I assist my colleagues? How can we use some of what we've observed in Cuba to come back to the states and say what are the possibilities for African Americans as a nation within a nation? Uh, we always joke about the top public shows that he was like, you know, if the revolution ever comes, um, where he talked about his uncle and his uncle's marital choices. And what I always loved about that joke is that I never met a black person who didn't understand what he meant when he said, you know, if the revolution ever comes, there's always been like this ominous invisible in the back of our mind. One day we'll all be free. One day we will rise up as a nation and there will be a revolution. Cuba did that. Cuba did that. And they left a great blueprint. However, um, with the fall of their allies, it kind of put them in a position where they they appear stuck, right? And mm-hmm. so wherever mm-hmm. they were before the special period in 1992, 1993, that's kind of where their progress was stymied. And now they're having to renegotiate their relationship not only with the West but with capitalism. And as time goes on, we're going to see how that may affect their concept of a one, one nation identity, um, their concept of equalidad and community. This is um, truly amazing to hear about the different mindset that they have in Cuba and the systematic commitment to making sure that all people are educated and that everybody has what they need. Um, So I can also see how, you know, that's impacting the economic environment negatively because then there's scarcity of resources when that happens. So, um, you know, whenever there's a scarcity of resources, even if we could take a family, you know, everybody's related, everybody hopefully loves one another, and but there's only one water bottle, you don't have to make some really hard decisions or somebody got to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the reality of it, you know. Um, and so the conversation, for me, is always going to go back to, uh, I can't remember who said it, but where's the cash at? You know, where's the cash at? And that's all I want to know is where are the resources, how are they being used, and how are they being divided? Um, and whether that resource is education, whether that resource is housing, whether that resource is uh, economic payment and opportunity. And it's interesting because now that I have I thought this for some time, but seeing how it's played out in Cuba, it makes me go back and revisit the works of Du Bois or Du Bois. It makes me go back and visit the work of Washington and say, mm-hmm. now that I have this different lens, what was, was he saying? We need to do this now to avoid scarcity, to avoid what Russia later would experience, or not Russia, but what Cuba would experience with the fall of their allies in Russia. Is that what he meant when he said we must be self-sufficient, you know, to avoid demise? Because if we become dependent upon other people, they can take away whatever they've provided at any time. Right. So now exactly. my work is, you know, maybe maybe Booker wasn't so wrong after all. <laughs> right. Right. Maybe he was talking. That's why they're wise. <laughs> right. It's like him. You know, what did he know? And you also have to consider when, when this when he's making this speech. I want to say that uh, 
if it wasn't 1920, I'm going to do a quick, you know, Atlanta Convention, uh, Washington, uh, uh, Google search. But I want to say that, uh, okay, that happened in 1895. Well, Cuba didn't, um, uh, they had the uh, uh, Spanish Revolution War, I want to say, in 1903. Slavery in Cuba ended, I want to say, in 1889. So you have to imagine, too, what's influencing him in saying these things. Um, you could definitely see, so when I came back from Cuba, everyone kept asking me, you know, girl, how is it? Because I know I went down there with my own, you know, conceptions, like, right, right. free the people, Che Guevara, revolution, right? And depending on where you are in your experience, in, in your experience with Black American, revolution, the concepts of revolution, the concepts of freedom are always constant things, right? And so for me, I'm going to Cuba, like, I'm, I'm going to, you know, meet cousins that I've never seen before and I'm playing common people. I'm just ready. And then you go down there and life is real. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, The toilet situation, the sewer situation, the ability to flush, the ability to have access to water to flush, those are very real things. Those are very real. And when you're looking at the reality of what it looks like to ration resources, and not always have resources, but yet be in the midst of all this beauty. It's one of the most beautiful countries. To be in the midst of all of this, you know, community. To be in the midst yeah. of this, um, you know, there, there, there are sectors that are burgeoning in Cuba. But then it's still, you know, dealing with very developing country problems. There's, a, there's an interesting dichotomy there. Um, right, right, right. It just, uh, it seems as if if they have this mindset where, you know, resources are plenty and they should be shared with everybody, then they should be progressing at a different rate. And, and if they have that mindset, maybe they should have even more than we do in the U.S., but they Listen, don't. if they had had the resources that they needed, they would be looking like Wakanda right now. I'm pretty sure. I'd right, for real. Like, Forever. And it's funny because I saw I stayed up all night. My flight left at like five in the morning. I stayed up all night to watch. Um, Wakanda came out that Friday before I left to go to Cuba. So I Friday night um, stayed up all night and went to go see uh, Black Panther. For some reason, I keep calling it Wakanda. I feel like my grandma wanted. I think I think, I think everybody is doing it. It's just a, it's a feeling. Uh, Wakanda right. is. It's a mindset that is inspiring at a at a rate that we can't really describe as people of color in America. That's why. <laughs> I walked out of that theater just elevated in a way, and I'm very happy that I made that sacrifice to stay up with the later screening to watch um, Black Panther, a.k.a. Wakanda, before I went to Cuba because it really allowed me to see possibilities, right, and mm-hmm. what could have been. Um, what we can still, you know, work towards. Even the Killmonger story, um, for me, was synonymous with the story of, you know, a children of di- diaspora. Why didn't you come back and get me? You know, why did you leave me here? Why didn't you come back and get me? Oh, okay. Well, because you didn't come back and get me, I'm going to create some problems. And I thought it was very interesting that he was very well educated. If you look at Killmonger, yes, he, yes. he was like, you know, I trained at West Point. I went to MIT. And is that not what we do here stateside? We feel as if we can somehow buy our freedom with our education. Um, we yeah. We've got to get more, especially black we've got to get them in school. We've got to get them through PhD programs. We need to see this. But in this 
ties into other other research that I have independent of Cuba, which is, you know, what is a good education? And we see that in the Killmonger character. What is a good education? Because, yeah, he went to MIT. He went to West Point. But what did it do for his soul? What did it do for his mind? How did it reinforce his cultural well-being? Did it make him a better Wakandan? Not at all. We saw that. You know, um, right. he is trying to kill. He is trying to disrupt. And that's antithetical to the mindset of Wakanda, which is community equality by bringing the national resources everything we can to protect people. Uh, American mindset, I was teasing to say, America's the only place where uh, the people work for the land. The land doesn't work for the people, right? And so in other countries, the land belongs to you. But that ties into even more research. It's also most other countries have more homogenized populations. America's always been on the diversity of its citizens. Um, and so even when we look at what America looks like compared to what we think of as a colony, we're really one uh, very diverse colony <laughs> because people came here mm-hmm. to work. They strictly came here to work. They came here to right. work. Mm-hmm. They work. So um, that's a whole other segment. But going back to Wakanda, seeing that movie before I went to Cuba was important because um, you really get to see, oh, they weren't playing. Even now, uh, Fidel, everywhere you go, there's billboards to Fidel, and one of their patriarchs shows the marquee. They were there, and those are the three folks that you hear about with consistency. And one of the schools that I visited, kind of like how we have the Pledge of Allegiance in the morning, um, the students, they were on some, like, Rhythm Nation, you know, stroll line level, you know, resistance, education, country, and that's their little morning routine. I was like, oh, <laughs> they weren't playing, you know. But putting that in the, the students that, I thought it was interesting that they put resistance in their morning chant. Um, a part of their chant is kind of like, you know, may I have the knowledge of Shea, de Rivera, may I have the, the spirit of Joseph Marti, something along those lines. And so they, they honor their ancestry. They honor the people that have made their way of life possible through revolution. Um, however, when the economic and international aid stops or just look different, the long-term plans of Fidel, the long-term plans of the revolution were not able to come to fruition. And so right now, mm. the country, you'll see with Raul, especially when he steps down, they're going to have to undergo uh, a reconstruction of their own in their national identity. And that's mm-hmm. really very interesting to see because Cubans are very proud of, um, you know, a revolution really is a religion for them. You know, if you ask them, I saw numerous colleagues who had copies of their constitution in their purse. One woman kept wow. out. She kept wow. going out and reading from the constitution, basically to put us in our place. You know, <laughs> Fidel said, right. you know, a lot of conversations started off with well, after the revolution or where people were reciting their national history as if reading from a script, as if it was very interesting to see that. Mm. But, um you know, it, it's a, the, the people have a deep commitment to that change, it seems. Too. Oh, definitely, because the revolution is the, for them the great unifier. But think about it. Here's stateside. You know, it's not unusual for people to pledge allegiance to America. It's not unusual. Yeah, yeah. Have an affinity to the, the founding fathers. It's not, you know, mm-hmm. every street corner you go on, there's a monument of some... Um, uh, um, mm-hmm. Presidential figure. Yeah, I just, I just wonder what it would be like in America if people would carry the Constitution around in their pocket 
and pull it out. what and region of the country you're in, there are people who do that, and it'll be right next yeah, to you. Yeah, I personally have never seen it. <laughs> yeah, oh, go down. Go, but that, go to go to, uh, go to Boston. There's, there's places. Oh, there are places. Deeply mm. patriotic. Deeply patriotic places. And um, but, I, but I understand what you're saying. I think one thing I have to keep in mind, too, is that people are much smaller geographically population size. So, um, and the people who I had access to, this is, this is why I want to go back. I had access to very high level, you know, ministers of education, university presidents, university professors. Um, I also had access to, you know, our cab drivers, our housekeepers, our servers, but these are people who are going to be paid. I want to go back and talk to common the people, right? People on the, on the wall while they're busted from people walking down the street. Um, and we went to a couple of provinces. We went to the Providence of Montanzas. We were in Havana. And there was one other place that we went to. I can't think of at the moment. But we rarely had interactions with the people. Now, that's very important because the way that our visa was set up, um, our schedule was purposefully very tight because they're not going to have 30, 40 American educators converging on their country at once asking a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Like that's just number one. You want some, you want to be a tourist, you want to drink rum, great, cool, God bless you, for three or four days. And you're talking about being down there for weeks, and you're coming in basically a caravan, they're monitoring everything that you do. And and that that was something that was interesting. Um, I don't blame them. You know, we, as friendly as everyone is, um, technically, legally, politically, we are enemies. And at no point could I forget that while I was coming. Um, and so there was a lot of diplomacy that occurred on both sides. But as people, even supporting American people, there's a lot there that can be explored because they're amazing people. I love their spirit. I love their art. I love this country. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But at no point should you ever forget as Americans, we do not have an embassy there. And what little bit of an embassy that we did have uh, was recently all the diplomats were pulled out because of the alleged conflict. Um, we have to be very mindful of our leadership here in America. And when I went to Cuba, mm-hmm. I was asked about our current administration more times than I think I was prepared to answer. Um, I did not realize on an international level how much of an impact and what that looked like. There was an incident where I was in my hotel and I was trying to check in and it was this German couple behind me, and for whatever reason, the the wife was very close to my backside, <laughs> and that that's a whole other conversation. That was happening a lot, where folks were very close to my backside, and then her husband was on my right, and I kind of felt barricaded in. But I think to myself, how can I get these people, you know, away from me so I can reclaim my personal space and do it in a way that isn't going to start uh, World War III? I turned around and I said, hello, how are you? Where are you from? And they said, Germany. And they said it very like, you know, we out here. <laughs> and <laughs> but they, were, they were very like, what you going to do, you know? And I said, okay, well, in Germany, is it customary for people to be very close? And then I kind of mimicked them. I got very close in their face. And they just kind of laughed. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to need you back up a little bit. And then the guy said, the husband, who was literally over my shoulder, he was a very tall man, he was like leaning over my shoulder, said, what about Trump? And I was like, what? What does Trump have to do with being on my booty? I need you to back up. 
But these are these are conversations. <laughs> and he said, What about Trump? He said it again. And I just looked at him and I said, Well, you know, like most regimes, um, we have a new administration, it's only been a year. Um, there's more to unfold. And then I looked back at him and I said, What about Anglican Macau? What do you think about her? And he said, Who, what, huh? But Anglican Macau, your prime minister, what do you think about her? Two things happened in that interaction. Number one, he was surprised that I knew who his prime minister was or is. Second, that I pronounced him incorrectly. But above all things, it was very evident I'm a woman of color and I'm an American. I completely shattered whatever his thoughts were about being an American right, woman, right. being an American woman of color and someone who's on the international landscape. So it's like, why do I go out of the country and I still got to got to break people down. <laughs> Why do I still Right, right. Down? You didn't think that you would have to do that. You know, like, I just want you out my face. But even that, even the fact that they were in my face, you know, was indicative of a lot of things. Like, you don't matter. Mm-hmm. You occupy your space and my space. They were, they were, they were right. lying there. And as a race scholar, wherever you go, you know, you're trained to identify these things. So it's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And, um... After he, you know, I talked about Anglican Macau, he ran away. He and his wife literally ran away. They were like, all right, bye. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden they didn't want to talk anymore. But as I replayed that incident later on that night, it also occurred to me when he said, what about Trump? I fully believe that he was under the impression that I was bringing up Nazi Germany, that my percentage of Germany was Nazis. And so in his mind, it's, well, you all have your own Nazis now. And that right, was a very right. interesting experience because wherever I went on the island, that was the sentiment that people were like, you should be embarrassed as an American. And that's something yeah. that I think state by, in our minds, whoever's president, we know, okay, you have four to eight years, and however you handle it, how you handle it. But on an international level, you know, this really is a matter of will this person have World War III? It takes on a, whole, a completely different center completely different. And I saw that in our interaction, that this is the face that is being presented to the world to represent all of us, whether that's what we want or what we don't want. I think statewide we might be able to have a little bit more nuance of, you know, oh, okay, maybe I did vote for this person that didn't, but they'll be gone soon. But internationally, oh, no. Mm-mm. They're not going to let put that down. Because think about it, if you ask the average person right now who is the prime minister of the, United, of, of the UK, the average person can't, can't answer it. They might say, oh, Margaret Thatcher, no bay, that, that was decades ago. They might say Tony Blair, uh, also decades ago. You know, the memory, our memory of international affairs can be very short because, uh-huh. as I've told some of my international friends, the U.S. is so large, every state can practically exist in its own country. It's so large. Yeah. Not only do we have to keep up with local politics, state politics, federal politics, then you have your neighbor, you know, your right. own state. And most news coverage is only going to cover to the extent that it can affect your state. So we could be right here in the District of Columbia and have no clue of what's going on locally in Texas or California or Wyoming or Utah. How many governors uh-huh. can the average person name in other states? Unless they're famous, unless they have a great PR team or they've been involved in something which you probably not. So we have other nuances that we're dealing with on the international plane, on the international level. They want to know who is your leader, who is speaking for you. And right uh-huh. now, that's who's speaking for us, all of us, whether you like okay. it or not, said that right away. Right. So wherever I went, people were asking me these questions. But again, this isn't just the taxi driver, even though they asked you. These are ministers of education. 
head of association, university professors, and they're asking you as a colleague, you want to talk about something completely different. But every conversation is now colored by that. So there were a lot of different layers to, to the research that I was doing, not intentionally, but once I got, got there, I saw that I also needed to give them an understanding and an education of who I am, not just as an American, but specifically as a black American. And right. one of the things I had to keep telling them is that we are a nation within a nation. Right? I know you just see American, but there are nuances to my experience. I had to break down the segregated school system to them. I had to explain to them what HBCUs were, and they just couldn't understand. They were like, well, why? why? I don't understand segregation. I don't understand. I don't understand. And I said, well, because legally this is the way it was set up. In their mind, how can the nation be divided against itself? It made no sense to them. It makes no sense to me. But nevertheless, I had to explain these things. And the best way that they were able to connect with it is when I said, well, HBCUs produce people that you all love, like Martin Luther King, Diane Nash, and uh, a host of other people, all of these people that you hear about, that you read about, that you enjoy their philosophy, came out of the segregated system of African-American pedagogy, that came out of that early nation of Reconstruction, colleges and universities to quickly educate the people, to get them up to speed, to have full participation in citizenship. They got that because that's where they are now. They're at a space where, okay, we got everybody literate, we got everybody through high school, now we got to get everybody through university. That's the next mm-hmm. level of where they want to go to as a country. And I'm happy that they felt that I could help them be a part of that. I, I can't wait to go back. But Yeah, that's really an Understanding my own history, my own legacy uh, here in the United States as a, as a, as a descendant of states, as an African American woman, it was very easy for me to empathize and identify with that aspect of people's uh, um, identity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I can understand what that looks like. Some of my other colleagues really struggled with that concept. They really did. And so now I, have to, I would have to support my colleagues I can say, this is what's going on. This is what this looks like. This is what you're looking at. And they were like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to go over here and do some wrong. <laughs> I was I was doing double duty. But um, it, it it was an interesting dynamic. It, it was a lot there, and it for me validated my choices and what I've chosen to research, why I've chosen to research it, how, and why it's very necessary. That it's not just America; it's global. Um, I was fortunate to get a little bit of internet because their internet is uh, very sparse. It's monitored, etc., and you have to buy it. And I was able to get, I think it was like a one to two clips per hour. And so I would start off my morning with 15, 20 minutes of internet. And I would go out on the veranda and I would upload pictures to Instagram. And after a while, I started just accessing everything. It's global, y'all. It's global. Pardon me. And it wasn't that I wasn't aware of it before. I traveled internationally before and I talked to them. Cuba really is a special country. It's very unique. And um, people, the beauty and the blight is. Uh, is it was very telling. It gave me a mirror as an American of the things that we can do better regarding community, regarding equality. But it also showed me where um, movements have to be progressive. You cannot remain where you are. It has to move with people. It has to move with the the, um, the outer world. And we saw that in Wakanda, right? Um, mm-hmm. And to realize we've been selfish by resources. We've let everyone else suffer while we while we enjoy this great life, 
not. We can't hide anymore. We have to now participate on the world stage. Um, in fact, we're going to be a leader on the world stage. And so there were a lot of parallels, a lot of parallels. Maybe a think piece. I mean, I feel like the world is overrun with think pieces, right? Especially with condensed mm-hmm. think pieces. But maybe that'll be my contribution <laughs> to mm-hmm. the condensed piece world. Well, um, I just want to say thank you to you for sharing your experience. Um, I think that as Americans and as black Americans, as people who are making progressive changes here in the U.S., that um, this knowledge is is needed in order to make the proper changes here, and uh, especially with the mindset of how we need to change our minds about how we interact with one another and how we grow together. So I just want to say thank you for being on Reminisce today, and um, I'm looking forward to sharing your story with other people. Well, Ryan, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for letting me talk about both Cuba, their education, and Wakanda. You come on, come on. <laughs> and Wakanda. Have a good day. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much.